Please be seated. Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning at the 10 o'clock service. Thanks for waking up early. I see um, Brad and Janelle Sewell. Would you please stand? We rec- welcome you as the new head of PDS and uh, moving to town. Very glad you're here, <clears throat> fellow Alabaman by way of Texas and Ireland or Scotland. And, you know. <clears throat> Would you please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I'm glad to be back with you. Thanks for a little time of vacation. I miss you when I'm gone, and I miss preaching to you. I like hearing these other preachers, but I like, I like preaching to you. You, you give me telepathic amens uh, outside of your masks and your eyes say amen above your mask and just love seeing you. And God has brought us the book of Revelation, I think, at a, a very key time in the life of our, in our world, in the life of our church, in the life of our city. I want you to expect the Lord Jesus who is moving among these lampstands to teach us this morning. He comes to us in this text, as you remember, maybe from our first couple of lessons we we talked about the outline of the book and said that it has an introduction, that's the prologue that we studied in the first chapter, it has a conclusion, and it has four basic visions around which the whole book is organized. The first three chapters or so is the, is the vision that we are stepping into now. We call that the king teaching his church. There are seven churches envisioned here. These were seven actual churches. But the number seven in the book of Revelation represents completeness, wholeness. So we can expect that everything that is going to be addressed in these individual churches is ultimately addressed to all the churches of Christ throughout the ages. He is he's putting his finger on the things that need to be healed, the things that need to be affirmed, the things that need to be corrected. There are seven characteristics of each of these, of these addresses. I won't go through all of them, but a couple of them are these. He points out what is going well in the church, and he points out what is not going well and must be corrected. And, and then he calls the church, the third thing is that he, he calls the church to repentance. He calls them to overcome. But he never calls the church, and he will never call us to do anything that he is not providing for by his Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Tells us tough things, hard things. He warns us. But the answer is always to turn back to Jesus. Not to make yourself better, but to turn back to Jesus for the, your individual healing and the church's healing. Find no exception here. And it's helpful before we read the text also to think about the church that, that he is addressing, the city he's addressing. It's the church at Ephesus. Paul himself planted this church. It was a very strategic church lying in the, at the conjunction of three major international trade routes, which explained its success. It's, it's, it's a very wealthy church, a wealthy city, I should say. 250,000 people. That was a major city in the ancient world. So important was this city that the Roman emperor, Domitian, allowed it to rule itself, to govern itself. He would come there on occasion, make important decrees. A lot of money there, as I said, also a lot of culture, uh, impressive architecture. The Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, was there. Great library, uh, 
architectural, uh, architecturally impressive accents like columns, streets, and so forth. It was a wealthy place. It was also a place that was inspired by the devil himself, as Paul discovered in a difficult way in, in Acts chapter 19 when he preached the gospel there. A lot of people got saved and they started throwing away their silver idols. It put a hole in the silver trade and you know something about when the gospel hits the pocketbook in a negative way, it brings out the worst. And, and that's, uh, they turned on Paul. He said they were like fierce animals. They were going to rip me limb from limb. It was a wealthy, powerful, impressive, satanically controlled city. And God planted a church there. And Jesus comes and talks to her and in the process talks to us too. We begin reading in verse 1, Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. John points out in this passage, as does Paul, as does every other biblical writer, that the church is essentially composed of two characteristics. If either one of these characteristics is absent, it ceases to be a church. What could they be? Let me answer that by means of a historical example from church history. About 150 years after this book was written, we think it was the book of Revelation was written in AD 90, 90 years after Christ was born, about A.D. 250, the emperor Decius, not Domitian, who is the emperor now during John's time, but Decius, an emperor who would come later, uh, set out systematically to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. Domitian persecuted her as well. Others persecuted her, but not systematically. That means that it doesn't, they didn't go at all the cities all at once, but they would go after one city or one location of, of Christians. And then the, so the Christians would flee to another place, another city and get away from it. But here Decius says, I want to wipe out the whole church. I've got to get ahead of the whole thing. And so I'm pursuing all the Christians everywhere. And the way he would test to see if uh, someone was 
a Christ follower or not would, was that he would hold up an image. They were, his representatives would hold up an image of him, the emperor or some other god in the Roman pantheon. And he would say, you must bow to this god, which effectively is turning the back on Jesus Christ. Now, a number of Christians, and Christians have reasoned this way throughout the centuries, a number of Christians said, you know, there's no need to die over this because, because there's no God except God. There, there, this idol is nothing. It's just a piece of stone, a piece of wood. So if I bow to it, I'm just bowing with my body, and in my heart, I'm praying to Jesus. So I can save my life and go on about the work of Christ after this persecution goes by. But others said, no, absolutely not. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to bow to that idol. I'm going to be loyal to Christ even if they take my life. And many died. Eventually, the persecution ended. And uh, the church began to regather again. And uh, Cyprian was the bishop of Rome. He was the bishop of the church. And Cyprian said to the churches, Regarding these people who had bowed, they called them the lapsi, the lapsed. Regarding them, he said, we must welcome them back. If they repent, we must welcome them back. After all, if Jesus could forgive Peter, who denied him three times, we must welcome the lapsi back as well. But a bishop from North Africa from named Novation said, absolutely not. We're not going to have any double standards. We've shed our blood for the testimony of Jesus Christ. If we welcome these people back, what are we going to say about the seriousness of following Jesus? They must never be allowed back into the church. And so the, the church of the East divided those following Cyprian, known as the effectively as the, the church of love. And those following Novation, the church of truth. We're standing for truth, not again and against those who are, are, who are compromising by love. And we're standing for love, not like those who are busting the truth over people's heads. And they fought like that for centuries. They didn't form, they didn't merge and form a denomination of truth and love. But they remained a church of truth and a church of love, and they fought each other, and they canceled each other out to the point that by the 8th century, the Muslims didn't have to raise a sword to take over Christianity. They just moved into the empty buildings abandoned by Christians. The Christians ate themselves up because they had ceased to be the church, one that holds to truth and love with equal commitment. truth and love. Speak the truth in love, Paul says. You're not speaking the truth if it's not in love, if it's not, it's not loving, it's not truthful. Truth and love. Now, this is exactly what Jesus says to the church here in Ephesus. He commends them, first of all, for their stand for truth. He says to them, you know, you, by, your, by your vigilance, you've figured out these false teachers, and they're not easy to find. They're not easy to detect. In fact, they look like apostles when they came into your midst. Paul had warned the Ephesians that this would happen after he planted the church in A.D. 50 or so. Remember, he was leaving in Acts chapter 20, and he, with tears, he said, be on your guard. Guard the flock which God purchased with his own blood, be careful because from among you there will come false teachers. And this is what's happening. 
False teachers don't come in advertising themselves. They don't put on their, the, the bill of their cap, I'm a false teacher. What's your name? They don't, uh, they don't have a, a, a pitchfork and a, and a tail and, and horns. They don't announce themselves. They are your best friends. They're your family members. They're your beloved teachers or preachers. They're your next door neighbors. They're the people who spoke a timely word to you or wrote you an encouraging note sacrificed for you. The devil is very good at his deception. So he brings people in, and Jesus said they're like wolves in sheep's clothing. So teachers, anyone who teaches the Word of God must be regularly scrutinized and tested. Paul invited it for himself. You test me by, by what I say to see if it squares with what has already been revealed. Every teacher, every pastor, every preacher, every, every uh, one who is delivering the word to you, every book, every ideology must be tested against the word of God we must ask, where is that in the Bible? The first pastor I ever worked for would regularly ask when he expressed our, I expressed my opinion about something, he would sometimes say, where is that in the Bible? They saw these false teachers for who they were, and they stood against them. And, the, and this false teaching had the name of the Nicolaitans. We don't know anything about these Nicolaitans. It's only mentioned one time by Ignatius outside of, the, outside of the Bible. He said it was a heresy that only lasted about 40 years. And then notice he doesn't say he hates the Nicolaitans. He hates the works of the Nicolaitans. And even though we don't know them exactly what they were, we it's easy enough to figure out what they were teaching. It's the same as every heresy. In fact, as we study these seven books, we'll see this repeated theme of what heresy looks like, false teaching looks like. It inevitably leads to immorality, and it's a form of idolatry. And inevitably, when, 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 in, when it is followed, it leads to immor- not just sexual immorality, but, but, that, but immorality which says, I can indulge my flesh in any way I want to. I can indulge my temper. I can indulge my, 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 uh, my appetite. I can in- indulge what I do with other people, what I can do with the Lord, Lord's day. The, I can do what I want with the, with the commandments of Scripture. It's immorality. And it's the idolatry that explains the immorality. And idolatry is not simply worshiping an idol of, of wood or stone, but an idolatry is, is taking your cues, your orders from anything or anyone outside of Christ. It's allowing a worldview, a political perspective, a newspaper, a news channel, your neighbor, your own prejudices, your enjoyments, your hobbies, your family, your loyalties, to shape who you are, what you think, what you do, the way you treat other people, in addition to or besides Jesus Christ. It's to have any other king. Now, there's another way to get at that. Sometimes I've, I've done this with you. It's to ask, what do you love? It's a similar thing. This, what you love tells you what your idol is. And one way to figure out what you love is to ask, what makes you angry? 
a backdoor way to get at it. What makes you angry? What makes you angry reveals who you love. Let's start with Jesus. What, did, what made Jesus angry? Jesus was angry at Lazarus' tomb as he looked at what sin had done to the world around him, how it had taken the life of his friend Lazarus, how it was causing his friends to grieve. He was angry at that. He was angry when the, the disciples kept the children away from him. He was, he was angry because they were keeping those away from Jesus whom they didn't think were sophisticated enough to get to Jesus. He was angry at the money that the money changers were in the court of the Gentiles around the temple. He wasn't angry just because there was money changing going on, that there was commerce going on. He was angry because they had pushed the Gentiles out of their access to worship because they thought they were ethnically superior. He was angry by that. He cleansed the temple, not just of the money changing, but to clear the way for Gentiles to come in and worship. He was angry. He's angry at favoritism in the church. Now, what makes me angry? I'm angry when someone backs into my truck. Why? Because that can be my idol. I'm angry when someone disrespects me. Why? Because I'm important. Don't you know that? And I can worship myself. What makes you angry? When someone doesn't agree with your political ideology, which isn't prescribed in Scripture? Does it make you angry when someone says something about your candidate? Does it make you angry when, when, when somebody uses a word that you don't like? Does it make you angry when, when something is done in a worship service that, that just disturbs your sensibilities and makes you uncomfortable because after all this is your church and it exists for your comfort? That's an idol. To make you angry when your husband or wife corrects you? Why? Because the idol is yourself. The Nicolaitans were idolaters. And we can be too. When something besides King Jesus in what he expresses in clearly in his word or what he doesn't express in his word, when something outside of Jesus and his word shape us to the point that we are judgmental of others and refuse to love them until they come in conformity to our comforts and tastes. That's idolatry. And it can lead to immorality, which includes the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. 
Well, these Ephesians were successful in opposing that idolatry. They, they rooted out that false teaching. Maybe it was some very dear friends who were teaching it, some of their favorite Sunday school teachers or, or pastors or, or elders or deacons. They, they had to confront them, and they, but they put down that heresy, and Jesus said, I'm very pleased with that. That shows the hard work of your elders and pastors. That's what Paul said in in Corinthians when he's defending his apostleship. He said, one mark of my being a true apostle is that I I work harder than the false apostles. That's going to take hard work from from your elders who are hard workers and your pastors who are hard workers of, of reading and, and, and listening uh, to the culture and, and reading the dusty old theological books and, and, and reading the book of church order and, and, and studying the cultural trends and living among you and hearing what things cause you uh, struggle and so forth and applying the gospel to that and, and helping us to tease out what is true and what is untrue. It takes hard work. We're blessed with that kind of leadership here. But Jesus said, I have something against you. Now, do you think it was only one thing? Do you think Jesus only had one thing against the church? That they were, only, they were absolutely perfect in every way except in this one little area. No, of course, they were sinners. They were shot through a sin and brokenness. But Jesus singles out one thing to say, if this is not corrected, I'm going to destroy your church. It's like the owner of a, of a business that, that, that has franchises and there's a, there are minimum standards. And if you, if you fail in those standards, they'll take the franchise from you. Jesus said, if, if this is not corrected, I don't care how many heresies you've opposed. I don't know how pristine your theology is, how precise it is. If this is not corrected, I'm going to snuff out your candle. I'm going to do away with your church. Now, surely they would, have, they would have been offended by that. You don't understand. You do, don't you remember how important we are? Paul himself planted this church. And, and, and then we had the two best teachers in the church. Priscilla and Aquila came and discipled us personally. Timothy was our pastor. Paul spent two years here with us. We're a wealthy church. We support missions all around Asia Minor. We, we gave a lot of money back to Jerusalem to help with the famine. <laughs> you know, what could possibly be so wrong with our church that you would remove it and destroy it? You've quit loving, he says. You've quit loving. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Lots of people try to define what that love is, but love is love. They, didn't, they, they were not loving the world, and they were not loving each other. And Jesus says, for that reason alone, I will snuff out your candle. Now, what do you do? When Jesus puts his finger on your heart and your life and he says, you're not loving. Individually and as a church, you do these three things. You must remember, Jesus says. You must remember. You must remember the love you had at first. Think back to the time you first became a believer. When you first came into the church of Jesus Christ or you were aware that you were coming into the church of Jesus Christ. What? What, what, was your, what was your heart like? Your heart was full of love. How in the world could Jesus love me, knowing the kind of sinner I am? How could this group of people accept me into their fellowship? 
And yet, and then we get more sophisticated and we learn more theology and we, we, we get things the way we like them and we become used to the way things are and we, we forget that love. He says, remember it and return to it. Second thing is, he says, you must repent. Repent is just turning, it's turning around. It's doing things differently. It's not just an attitude. It is, it is betrayed in words, portrayed in words. One of the early catechisms of the church taught, here's how you can tell if a teacher is true or false. Does his life match his words? And if his life doesn't match his words, then he's a false teacher. Now, Francis Schaeffer said it even more strongly than Francis Schaeffer, one of the, the great apologists of our modern era, a great Presbyterian thinker who moved to Switzerland and with his little chalet there led hundreds of people to Christ and thousands and thousands more through his writings and through his speaking. And uh, Schaeffer wrote, wrote uh, thousands of pages, but perhaps his most important book is one is as thin as this plexiglass right here. You can hardly find it. I can hardly find it on my shelf. It's called The Mark of the Christian. That's a bold statement. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what the mark of the Christian. You either have this or you don't. You're either a Christian or you're not. The mark of the Christian is love. We're good at asking people when they join the church, can you tell us how you gave your life to Christ and what you started to believe and think? And that's good. That's right. We should also ask and tell us how you're loving. The mark of the Christian and Schaefer was pretty provocative in that little book. It's an exposition of, of John 13 and John 17. And he says that, that in, those, in those two chapters, Jesus gives rights to unbelievers. In John 13, he says, where Jesus says, you'll know my disciples by the way they love each other. He says, he effectively says to the world, an unbeliever, when you see a Christian, you test them out. Listen to them. Watch them and see how they proactively are loving other believers. If you don't see it, if you hear judgment in their voice, you hear gossip, you hear disrespect, I give you the permission to dismiss them as a Christian. Schaefer added in John 17, he said, Jesus said it even more boldly. He said, I've been sent on a mission from my father. And I pray, Lord, that they will be one. I pray that they will be one so that the world will know that you and I are one. Schaefer said effectively he's giving a right to the unbeliever to say, if a Christian tells you that he is a believer, and they aren't loving each other. If a church is not demonstrating proactively the astonishing love of the gospel, then I give you permission to dismiss the truth that I was sent by the Father. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus can't save. It doesn't mean that you have a way of, of negating what Jesus determines to do or that God in his sovereignty determines to save. But it is a powerful warning by Jesus who also said it would be better for you that a millstone be hung about your neck than that you cause a little one, someone searching for the faith 
to stumble. The primary test is how are they loving each other? Truth is important. That's why I preached a whole point on it. But proactive love is just as important. What does that, what does that look like? Well, it doesn't look like anything that the world does. Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. So the world knows this kind of love. The, love, the world knows indulgent love. Whatever you want to do, that's you go ahead and do it. I love you. Or the world knows this kind of love. I love myself, therefore I'm going to do whatever I want to do. The, lo- the world knows this kind of love. I, I love you because you're like me. You make me feel comfortable. You affirm my opinions. We are loving. I love my neighbor because he keeps his yard clean and so forth. It's comfortable. It's peaceful to live next to him. The, the, the world knows conditional love. The world knows selfish love. The, Lord, the world knows self-indulgent love. The world knows picky love. The world knows how to love those who love you back. But the world doesn't know the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, which is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love those who revile you and say all kinds of things against you for my name's sake. Love those who reject you. Love those who rub you the wrong way. Love those who have a different color skin from you. Love those who are in a power structure that you don't like. Love those who are not in a power structure that you like. Love those who are in a socioeconomic structure that that you approve of. Love those who are responsible, irresponsible. Schaefer goes on to say that it it means that we must be retrained, retrained by Jesus himself. You know, Jesus, I'm not going to tell you now, if I stopped the sermon now, this would be a a, a legalistic sermon. I'd say, now you just go start loving, okay? You get over that. You can't do that. But Jesus is walking in these lampstands, and he as the priest, as Kirsten reminded us of, he is the priest who comes along and he says, now I'm calling you to that which I'm going to enable you. Come back to me and I'll show you how to do it. I'll enable you to love. And when you come to Jesus, this is the way you and I start loving. Schaefer said it has five characteristics. One is it, it, it has regret and tears. When you're out of accord with somebody else, in the, in the body of Christ, you don't say, well, good riddance, I didn't like them anyway. But you weep as Paul did. He said, uh, he said to the Corinthians who treated him terribly, he said, you know my anguish and my bitter tears for you. When somebody rejects your witness or persecutes you, you weep because you know that they're headed to destruction. Love weeps. Love, he says, is also pro- is proportional, but he really means it's disproportional. The greater the offense against you, the greater the love you show. Because the, the only kind of love that's going to give away that you are possessed by Jesus is love that has no earthly explanation. And thirdly, it's the love that's costly. To love your brothers and sisters just in the church 
is to say, I am going to consider it a privilege to be uncomfortable knowing that there's somebody else in my congregation who is enjoying this aspect of worship. Or I'm going to sacrifice what is given to me. Or I'm going to, I'm going to, to uh, I'm, going to, I'm willing to be defrauded, as Paul said, so that this relationship might be reconciled. It's costly. Fourthly, it's, it solves problems or tries to. It's not one that says, yeah, yeah, boy, I don't want to get into that. That person's going in a bad direction and boy, but if I confront them, I'll lose my friend. Or, or that person is, um, has really offended me, but if I bring it to their awareness, I could lose a business deal or I could, I could lose advancement in our society. Or no, it says when there's a tension, I don't run away from it. What is our world? Our world only knows when somebody, somebody offends you, you call them a name and then you run the other way. You call them the bad name, the worst name you can. Christians don't do that. Look, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. You're stuck with your Christian family. You don't have any place to go. You've got to go back to the person. You may not get it worked out exactly, but neither can you leave them. We're going to let the Holy Spirit try to solve this thing. And then finally, he says, it produces oneness, unity. Yes, we talk about diversity in the culture and so forth, but we're, we're talking about unity and diversity that only the gospel can produce. This is what Jesus said. I want there to have other people of this fold. And, and it's what Paul said is the mystery of the gospel, that Gentiles and Jews are worshiping in the same place and sacrificing for each other in order to bring union. And they bring union in such a way that an unbeliever steps in and says, I don't know what's happening here, but this thing, this kind of thing doesn't happen anywhere else in our culture. So to be the church of Jesus Christ in this culture is what our church has said. It's put it in its official document that we want to, we want to, to reflect in our congregation the diversity of our Memphis community. That's not a false diversity. It's just, a, just a painting in different colors, but rather that people come in and say, wow, I, I've been in other places that are intentionally diverse, but I've never seen a place where they call each other brother and sister and father and mother and stick it out when there are disagreements. We're, to look, we're, not, to, we're not supposed to look like a country club or a fraternity or a sorority. We, we, we need to look more like a Star Wars bar. There's a whole bunch of creatures that have, there's no reason for them to be there except they're, they're united by some force that you can't detect. Paul, I mean, Jesus gave Peter the vision, didn't he? He lowered the, the, the sheet down, and what was it full of? Creepy, crawly things. And he said, that's the church. And Peter, you've got to embrace it. That's the apologetic for the gospel. Do they love each other in a way that is not expressed anywhere else in the culture? A couple of years ago, I was walking down our <clears throat> hallway here at church. I went by our library. We have a great library, by the way. 
And in the, in the, in the uh, glass uh, displaying the new books that had been purchased was, was with, this, with this title. It caught my attention. Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Percy. Well, I had to read that book. And then, and then later I got to meet Jackie. She's part of the Gospel Coalition world that I'm in. And I heard Jackie speak. She was there with her husband. They were giving their testimony and she told her story. She's an African-American girl, grew up in, a, in, a, in the church and with a godly grandmother. And, and, and she, she, but she said early on she was attracted to girls and she was all alone in that. And she, she, was, she felt shame over that. Eventually she couldn't deal with it any longer. And, and she just gave into it and gave herself completely over to that lifestyle and took on a, a, a male identity. And Started to dress like that with a backward cap and loose-fitting clothes and, and uh, jeans and chains and so forth. And she identified in that way and gave herself fully into that gay lifestyle. She said she encountered a lot of Christians, Christians in her family, encountered Christians along the way. And she said they all did the same thing. They all said, you know you're wrong. You know you got to quit that. You got to start dressing differently. You need to quit that lifestyle and so forth. But except for one Christian, her cousin. And she knew that her, her cousin didn't approve of the lifestyle choices she was making. But, she, but her, her cousin also loved her very practically. Hey, let's go to a movie. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's, what's going on in your life? How's school going? Can I help you with your homework? She said, nobody had to tell me that, that what I was doing was wrong. I knew that. As an image bearer of God, it was imprinted on my conscience. And finally, the time came, she said, when I couldn't take it anymore, the guilt of my conscience. And in my apartment, I said, okay, Jesus, take over my life. And so then she said, now what am I going to do? i got to talk to a Christian. And she thought, I, I don't want to talk to any of those Christians who are so condemning of me all along. But my cousin, she loved me. He called her cousin. Her cousin affirmed that she loved her. And she said, she didn't tell her, you know, you need to straighten up your life. You need to quit dressing that way. And you, you need to cure all those, those desires right before, before the Lord will accept you. She just said, Let's go to church. Now, some fear ran through Jackie because, because she knew that her sister went to a majority white church and a very conservative church. But she trusted her cousin, and she went into the, she went into the, to the narthex, and she said, in Jackie's words, a little old white woman came running up to her. And she didn't look her up and down. You know, that can happen. She didn't look her up and down. She looked her in the eyes. And she said, what's your name? She said, nobody asked me my name. Nobody in the world I've came, I came from, nobody asked me my name there. They didn't care my name. What's your name? Jackie, she said. Well, Jackie, we are so glad you're here. 
that sealed the deal. She was loved. She heard the truth about the gospel. She heard it confirmed what her conscience had been telling her. Her desires, her same-sex attraction didn't go away overnight. Maybe it never has, even though she's gotten married. But she quit acting out on it. And nobody ever told her, you need to go to the store and buy some clothes that look like a girl. The more she said she experienced the love of God in Christ in the fellowship of the church, the more she embraced who she was, who she'd been created to be. She went shopping on her own. That's the power of the gospel. Truth in love. Love that brings truth. And this world, even the church of Jesus Christ these days, in some of his expressions, acts like it doesn't know these. Second, you're good at loving. You're great at doctrine. We could always be better. And so it's Jesus who comes to us. And he comes in and he says, I'm going to help you. You turn to me. I will enable you to be this kind of indomitable gospel force of truth and love. And the world will not be able to deny it and seekers will not be able to resist it. You ready for that mission? Let's do it. Let's keep doing it. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us enough to, to affirm what your Spirit is doing positively in us, and you love us enough also to tell us when we need to be corrected. Thank you for the heritage of this church, the way you have preserved this church for so many years. Yet we humbly come to you again and say, oh Lord, King Jesus, be our King. Make us exactly what you want us to be, no matter what it costs. Get a name for yourself. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.